Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Monday, June the 1st, 2015, and this is episode 1585 of the Survival Podcast. Did you hear what I just said? June the 1st, 6-1-15, June, 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 summertime. June. I know it doesn't feel like summertime because it's been cooler across most of the country than it's typically this year. We actually haven't had a day here in Texas. North Texas has not had a day hit 90 degrees yet. I remember not so many years ago working out in the heat. Uh, it's been about 98, 99 uh, years, somewhere around those years, and having 100-degree days in April. In April. I remember days in June that were 106, 107 degrees. Um, I'll take the low temperatures while I can get them. Anyway, um, moving on from here, I do want to point something out at the beginning of today's show. You might have heard my voice sound a little softer in the last week, and you will hear that continue today. I am bringing up the, the levels of volume with the editing software a bit, and that may suffer the audio quality just a tiny bit. The reason I'm doing that is by turning the gain on the mic way down and having to speak a little louder and get closer to the mic, you're less likely to hear the background noise that's going on intermittently as my kitchen remodel continues, and we'll do so for another three weeks. Um, and uh, so that's why you might hear a little bit softer uh, from the Jack voice. So I have to be a little bit more disciplined with my microphone etiquette and stay closer to the mic. I'll try to do that for you today. Today is a Monday show, so that's a listener feedback show. This is where you send me your emails. To Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Again, Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. You send those emails there, and I respond to them every Monday on a Monday show. I don't respond to all of them because there's hundreds a day, but I try to pull out a good variety every week for you. I think I've done that. I think today might have some of the most dramatic variety uh, that you will hear on a TSP in any time recently. I think that we've got stuff all over the map today, and hopefully that puts something in today's show for everyone. Before we get into uh, today's show, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do an awful lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is jmbullion.com. When I'm looking for silver or gold, I go to jmbullion.com and I'll tell you why. They're a small enough company that I can personally communicate directly with the president, Michael, at any time of my choosing. And that means as, uh, as someone that's endorsing them, if you ever have a problem that doesn't get resolved by their customer service, which is 99% of the time stellar anyway, I can make sure that it gets taken care of for you. And I think that's really important in my sponsors. Next is pricing. The entire point of buying silver and gold is it's the same, it's the same, it's the same. You get the same Silver Eagle from JM Bullion as you do from Atmex or Monex. It's exactly the same. It's the same purity, it's the same weight, it's the same design, it's the same cut. It is the same. It's like buying a Wilson basketball, whether you buy it from you know Walmart or Academy Sports and Outdoors. It's the same. That's the point. So why pay more? So why not deal with a company that's a small company, that has great customer service, that offers free shipping on all orders, and has better pricing when you're buying the same thing. Now, why silver and gold? I'm not an all-in guy. I'm not the guy that, like, you need to get out of the dollar. They're going to burn it to the ground. It's going to be worthless tomorrow. By the way, give me your dollars and here's some silver. I'm not that guy. 
But I do know that the plan for our money is a continued devaluation through the process of inflation, which is a hidden tax on the wealth of the American people. And I know that's the case because the former chairman of the Federal Reserve said so on the floor uh, of the, the United States House of Representatives while being questioned by Ron Paul. He admitted that and said, it's okay. That's the way the system works. It's supposed to work that way. Well, if that's the plan, then my plan is to make sure I have a wealth assurance policy. We talk about insurance a lot, but assurance is, is equally important. And the way I personally do that is I have 10% of my net wealth, roughly, in silver and gold. I recommend that you do something similar. My personal recommendations are that you consider uh, a wealth assurance program of 5% to 10% of your net wealth in hard commodities like silver and gold. And if you need silver and gold, I can't give you a better recommendation than JM Bullion. Check them out today. And remember, members of our support brigade, you do get a discount on larger orders from JM Bullion. Check the benefits section of your MSB account to learn more about that. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, westernbotanicals.com. Um, I am a big believer in going to herbs before going to conventional medicines, be they prescription drugs, over-the-counter, I don't care. Um, I have personally found that herbs are a more gentle way to treat uh, the acute symptoms and chronic symptoms that we all deal with on a daily basis. Now, I'm not a doctor, and I don't prescribe treatments, and I never claim to. And the people at Western Botanicals, while they are a chiropractic facility, also don't make medical recommendations. They simply provide the highest quality herbs, raw herbs, and herbal supplements, and other things like essential oils for your own use. And they're real people that really care about you, and if you pick up the phone and call them, someone in Utah, not New Delhi, will answer the phone and help you make the right decisions for yourself. That's what Western Botanicals is all about. They are a great sponsor. They have been with us a very long time, six-plus years. That is that is forever in the world of podcasting. They also have a program called their Premium Membership Program where they give a 25% discount on everything they sell. They sell that membership for $50 a year every day. If you are a member of our support brigade, you get that membership absolutely free. All you have to do is call them up, give them the code word in your MSB account, and they will set up your account for you so you can get 25% off on everything they sell. Some of the favorite things that I use by them are the turmeric formula. Uh, that is one of the best anti-inflammatory things that I've ever used personally for myself. Again, I can't make individual personal recommendations on it, but I can tell you that I use it and it works for me. If my back is sore and achy, if my shoulder's acting up from an old injury from the military uh, after a hard day working, I go to that. Their deep heat ointment is another great thing for that. They have a pain relief formula that uses valerian. Those are things I personally use on a regular basis. There's a lot of other really great things there. Basically, guys, if it's herbal and it's legal, you can find it at Western Botanicals, where their goal is to create an herbalist in every home, to empower you not only to use their formulas, but to give you the raw herbs and the ingredients you need to make your own herbal formulations, including how to use the herbs from your own backyard and then get the parts for the formulation you need from them and the extra materials and the knowledge from them. You can get everything at westernbotanicals.com. Check them out today. Again, westernbotanicals.com. And if you're an MSB member, do not forget to get your premium membership, 25% off everything they sell every day of the year. And with that knocked out, let's go ahead and do the history segment. The year is 1585 because the episode is 1585. Alex Shrugged at tspwiki.com has three really great segments for us on deck today. The first one is, the first pie day is now possible. Number two today, baby, it's cold outside, hot chocolate comes to Europe. And number three, 
the Anglo-Spanish War and the sum of their fears. I'm actually going to do a little bit of each one today, just to have some fun. Um, what I want to give you from the Anglo-Spanish War is a quote at the end of Alex Shrug's take, because I don't think most people are aware of the origin of the term sum of their fears, and it's not 1585. Uh, this is a quote again from Winston Churchill. Why? You may take the most gallant sailor, the most intrepid airman, and the most audacious soldier, and put them at a table together. What do you get? The sum of their fears. If you want to know more about that, you have to read it yourself. Uh, the next one is on hot chocolate coming to Europe. Um, I think that it's interesting in this one to just kind of look at the difference between what we call chocolate and what was called chocolate at the time. The chocolate that was uh, consumed at the time was far closer to something like coffee, Uh, than it is to what we know of today, but Europeans immediately began to sweeten it, and we took off on a path toward hot chocolate as we know it today. But we didn't really get there until 1828. The, the, what you think of as chocolate today in its current form has only been around since 1828. I'm going to actually read to you the first pie day is now possible. Actually, the first pie day will be March 14th, 15th. 92, so not for a couple more years yet. But you can't have the first pie day without accurately uh, calculating pie out to at least six decimal places. But other than the novelty, why should we care? Okay, if you're pouring concrete into a circular base for a water tank, or if you're using an auger to drill footings, you will need to know the number of square feet of concrete to have delivered to your job site. But circles and cylinders are not square. The formula to make this calculation includes pie, Is a constant, so having a good estimate of pi makes your final answer more accurate. For a small job, it probably doesn't matter, but as the jobs get bigger, the errors increase. Many people in history can claim good estimates of pi using various methods. Even the Bible can make a Kabbalistic, mystical claim. Archimedes made the first generally accepted estimate. However, this year, pi is finally presented as an irrational number that can be calculated accurately to six decimal places. So now we can have Pi Day. The man who accomplishes this is the French amateur mathematician Francis Vetti. His formula is unwieldy, but it is the first. My take by Alex Shrugged. An April Fool's joke goes out every once in a while about some legislature passing a law that Pi should equal three in order to make things easier on students. Gee, that actually sounds a little bit scary like somebody might do it. Huh? Guess what? While all the claims are false, it almost happened in Indiana in 1897. Apparently, as the reasoning went, since pi was one of the insolvable mysteries and above man's ability to comprehend, a few formulas were presented in improper ways to figure out pi that didn't offend the sensibilities of citizens in Indiana. Amongst the proper values was 3.2. Professor C.A. Waldo of Purdue University was in attendance during the vote and pointed out the error, and I can, I can imagine him calling them all dunderheads, The vote failed and science was safe. Thank you, Pro Professor Waldo. So where was Waldo in 1897 saving us from mathematical idiocy, apparently? Um, my take on this is I think it's actually interesting to recognize patterns in numbers. Um, as I've alluded to in the past, I, my self-diagnosis would say that had the, the concept existed when I was a kid and screening been there, that I would have been labeled as somebody with Asperger's syndrome when I was a child and probably subjected to medication and therapy and treatment, all kinds of stuff that would have messed me up instead of letting me deal with my own stuff and figure out how to live my life. Um, and part of that is like this 
obsession with numbers. Like I don't have it to the level some people do, but I notice patterns and repetitions in numbers all the time, and I just think they're neat. And people that don't do that don't get it. Okay, um, but so March fourteenth, for fifteen ninety two becomes the first actual Pi Day because it's out to the six numbers, 3.141592. But there is a thing called Pi Day that's every day, or every day, every year in the United States, and that's just March 14th, 3.14. This year, we didn't get to six, but we got to four. 3.1415, March 14th, 2015. We just had to drop the 20. To me, that's interesting. To you, maybe not so much. With that, uh, let me remind you real quick about the Member Support Brigade. Consider joining. Learn more. Go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on Members. That's all I'm going to say today. You military and service guys know about your discount by now. Anyway, uh, with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. I actually want to talk about something that sort of kind of relates to the Member Support Brigade in the first segment today. Um, Those of you who are expired, I've mentioned a sale on the air a couple times that you can get access to. I went ahead and decided to email all the expired members and say, hey, maybe you didn't hear about this, but here's an offer to you. And then they're responding back to get the details of the sale. Uh, if you're an expired member, you should have gotten that email. A little side note, if you've sent me a response as of, I don't know, noon today, and you haven't gotten a response back, your email provider is probably blocking my response to you. If you're in Gmail and you want to get responses from me, you've got to put me into your uh, 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 contact list. Just saying. Yahoo, that would help as well. Those two are like the biggest filtering messes that are out there. But anyway, so I, I run into the sale. So whenever you do this and you email people who have expired and not renewed, um, you'll get a few people to tell you, I want to tell you why I didn't renew. And I didn't renew because you said this and I'm mad. And okay, that's, <laughs> that's okay. I, I don't think that... Um, my life will change from losing a member or two. But some of the things I say do cost me. And I want to kind of point that out because I think it's important to understand why I'm willing to do it anyway. Most people running a business will not say something that will piss off their customer base at all ever, infinity, because the bottom dollar is the most important thing to them. What I do here at Survival Podcast is not about the bottom dollar. Yes, if I don't make the bottom dollar. If I'm not capable of making the bottom dollar, then we have a real problem, especially if you like the show, because it would go away. So I don't, I'm not going to do anything really, really dumb and just make everybody angry, angry out of spite so that everybody leaves. That would be stupid, and I would deserve the repercussions from doing it. But if I'm going to say something and I think to myself, you know what, that might upset a few people. I'm, I'm sorry, then you're going to be upset. And a couple people emailed me and said, hey, you know why I'm not renewing? Because you don't like the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, that's why. And on that note, I would like to try a simple experiment with the audience. And I would love to hear your comments on this in the, the comments section today. If you can play by the rules that I'm going to set. Now, this is my game, so I get to set the rules for my game. If you don't play by the rules, nothing's going to happen. You're not going to get fouled out or anything. But you may not get any kind of a response because... This is about an experiment that has a question for you. And it doesn't tell you how to think. It doesn't tell you what conclusion to draw. It just forces you to think about something that's emotionally charged, via logic, and then draw from your logical conclusion your own decisions about how to think about things. Including, I'm still going to stay with my current opinion, 
but now I at least understand why people might have a different opinion, or I still think those people are just wrong, or this doesn't make any sense. It's up to you, but I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you as a favor to me, for, for five minutes, take all of the emotional baggage, all of the things that have been programmed into your mind as to what's patriotic and what America's all about and those things, and just take the emotional components and just disconnect for them for five minutes. Put it on the shelf. It's not going to go anywhere. You can take it all back. Now, what I've actually said about the Pledge of Allegiance, not that it's bad, not that it's evil, not that it should go away, not that it should be banished or banned or anything like that. I've said that I don't think it really makes sense that we take our children and program these words into their minds from grade, grades K through 12 without an understanding of the origin of the words, where they came from, what they really mean, who created them, etc. That I don't like that, that I actually see it as a form of group prayer. Now, I'm not on any campaign to get that undone. I think the public education system it has so many things that are so much bigger of a problem than this. But I don't like this component either. And this has caused wailing and gnashing of teeth and how dare you. People died for the pledge and other just claims that don't really make sense. But let's just, again, can we take the emotion out and let me pose a question to you. I want you to go on an imaginary journey with me for a thought experiment. Here's the thought experiment. There never, ever, ever, ever was infinity a Pledge of Allegiance to the flag up until right now. So it is now June 1st, 2015. You've never heard of a Pledge of Allegiance to the flag ever once in your life. You've never heard the words, the concept, the thoughts. There's everything else about the flag is the same. People stand during the Star-Spangled Banner. They either salute if they're in uniform or put their hand or their hat on their heart. They remove their, they, to honor that component of our flag and its symbolism in America, which I'm actually very much for, by the way. I don't think you should be forced to, but I'm very much for that. I understand the, the ideals of this nation and they are important to me. Though I don't support the state, I support the ideals that the state sold to us. But all of that stuff's still there. All of that stuff is still there. There's still a flag, okay? There's still a, a, a reverence. There's still an understanding of the symbolism. All of that's still there, but you've never heard of the pledge before in your life. Up pops a guy who is a card-carrying socialist. He has a card that says, Member of the Socialist Workers' Party of America. In his pocket, he will proudly show it to you. He pens the Pledge of Allegiance for the very first time today, June 1st, 2015. He's politically connected enough to be able to use the offices of Congress and the presidency to gain exposure with that. And under our current president, Barack Obama, okay, and our current Congress and our current House, that we think is so much different than our government in the past, okay, but right now today... In June 1st, 2015, that idea is floated. It turns out that this gentleman has a cousin. His cousin is also a card-carrying socialist, and he's an industrialist. He makes stuff. He has factories and stuff like that. And one of his things is he builds and makes flags. Made in America, red, white, and blue flags. He's a socialist, and he also thinks this Pledge of Allegiance is a good idea. So using the, the, the collective power of the state, these gentlemen are able to lobby and, and get through our government layers that we are presented with this as something that we think is good for the nation. Okay. 
Interestingly, in this world, most schools have flags. Most public schools have American flags out in the front or in the lobby or what have you. But we don't have a flag in every single classroom in America under the, there was never a pledge because there wasn't before there was. Okay, So along with all this, you're also told that public money will be spent to buy a flag for every classroom in America and that your children and your children's children and their children's children forever will honor the flag every morning by putting their hand over their heart, turning to the flag that your dollars paid for, and reciting an oath to this flag that never existed before, written by a socialist and sold to you by your government. Would you be okay with all of that if it happened today? Now, I know what you're going to say, well, it doesn't matter because things change. Hold on. Remember the emotions and the baggage? It's all not supposed to be in you right now. It's supposed to be on the shelf. Don't be afraid of your answer. You can go back to all that if you want to. It's okay. I'm not going to be upset. No one's going to be upset with you. No one's even going to know. Just put it aside for a minute and be honest, as honest as you would be if you stared into the face of your version of God. And tell me, and tell yourself, would you be okay with that if it happened today? Now take that answer and merge it back into the baggage that you still carry. And you make your determination for what that means for you and your family and your life going forward. I have no opinion whatsoever about what you should do with your answer because there's a hundred thousand plus of you and I don't even know what your answer is. But even if you're going to say, well, that, you know, no, I would not, but it doesn't matter because there's a hundred years of history and this was changed and so and so and now it means this and we made it for good, what was for evil, whatever you're going to say. I just want to say, whatever your answer to that was, does it at least help you understand why the person that says, I don't agree with you, may not be a flag-hating uh, a communist spy uh, for the former Soviet Union trying to uh, topple our government or some nonsense, or some disrespectful person that would burn a flag? Do you think that it's just possible that someone would have, would have a logical, reasonable, conscious objection to this practice, that even if you don't agree with it, you could respect it? Because that's all I've ever presented. And I think it would be interesting for many people, and this is a very hot-button issue, so it's a good example, but if you could start taking anything that you immediately have an angry, visceral reaction to and take all of the emotion and set it aside for five minutes, can you not do that with any issue? Just give it five, give yourself five minutes of permission to actually logically examine the situation and change the context. We're going to talk about that in another story today. And you, I, I'm not even going to say that we're at that story until we're at the end of it. And I'm going to say this was the one. And I want you to use your pattern recognition skills to see if you can spot the story when we get to it. Because it has nothing to do with anything we've talked about so far except the pattern of changing the context. And re-examining how you feel about something based on the context. All right. With that, I want to go to a totally different question. Listener named Dan writes in and says, Jack, occasionally, this is, you want to talk about left, I told you it's going to be variety day. Watch this. Occasionally, Jack, you pay, you know, pay lip service or talk about herbal teas. 
and you talk about making different teas, and you might mention mint or blackberry or whatever. But what is like your go-to recipe for tea, and how often do you drink it, and how do you make it? Um, my go-to recipe for herbal tea is something that's really just finally been refined to the point where I'm totally like, this is it. This is my base. And I might do things totally different, but a lot of times what I'm going to be building on is this base. And this has turned out to be a fantastic tea that everybody who's tried it loved it. And here's the good news. The three things that you grow to put in it will grow anywhere and grow so aggressively, many of you will want to confine them into pots or cement, you know, prisons to keep it from spreading to the rest of everything. And the three things that go in it are peppermint, lemon balm, and bee balm. And I use about equal parts of lemon balm and peppermint, and about half of that part, so consider it a one, one, half part, so a half part of bee balm. The peppermint gives it this amazing cooling flavor. The lemon balm gives that lemon and, and the little bit of bite from the citronella. And there's a weird thing with bee balm, bee balm or morinda. It's also a mint family marriage. It tastes nothing like mint at all, though. It's a very almost bland taste, but there's almost this like buttery soft undertone that makes those two flavors blend together. It's calming and invigorating at the same time. It's good cold and it's good hot. We make it a gallon at a time, and here's how I do it. I've actually been setting up to the point where I'm actually paying myself every time I make a gallon of this tea. So I'm going to tell you how to do that, too, with this answer. So we have customers that come for our eggs. It's pretty easy to say, hey, would you like a pot of this? It's five bucks, right? So when I make tea, especially from fresh leaf, I do a, a big harvest. And we'll do huge harvests at the end of the season for dried to get through to the next time we can do fresh because all the stuff's going to freeze to the ground in the winter anyway. But during this time, you're picking green. And unlike a lot of plants, you can propagate mint family almost any time you want to. So I'll cut a big amount, but I've got big amounts available, so it doesn't really hurt the, the growth, and it, we're not really harming the amount we have. But I'll cut a big handful. I'm talking like a bundle of, of lemon balm and a bundle of peppermint. You know, you're talking about, I don't know, something about as big around as like a coffee cup between the two of them, maybe a little bit bigger than that when they're put together, and then about half that amount of bee balm. And then I'll sit down at my little workbench out in my, my garage, and I will pick the best end pieces for propagation, you know, kind of healthy and nice-looking leaves and all, and I'll cut them off at about six inches long, and I'll strip all the leaves but the last three or four leaves off of those, and I set them aside. I make little piles. And so I'll set a little pile aside of, of, of peppermint cuttings, lemon balm cuttings, and bee balm cuttings, usually enough to make about two pots of the bee balm and the lemon balm. When I say pots, I mean propagated pots of a new plant, and one of bee balm with the caveat that I put four cuttings in each pot because when they start growing, it fills the pot in really fast. It looks like a great big plant, and it is. Huge root system ready to go. Drop it in the ground or a pot, and you've got a new plant. Right. So with those, I can continue to expand my production of these, which are becoming a honestly a cash crop long-term is how we see them because we'll be doing this tea dried and selling it to our customers. Right. So we need a lot of it, and it grows easy, so why not? It makes great ground cover. Lots of beneficial insects. It gets away and gets invasive. Yes, that's why you might want to put it in a pot because you might be worried about that. And if you're worried about your mint escaping and you put it in a pot, make sure that pot's not sitting on bare soil 
because eventually the roots will go into the ground and it will establish itself. That's how tough this stuff is. So normally you take those and you just stick them into wet dirt and they usually catch. I've been dipping them to a one-to-one solution of a, a liquid plant rooting hormone uh, that I learned about Nick Ferguson's course because that just really enhances it. You put them in there and they look like hell. They just fall over like, ugh. You come back and you water it really good and you come back like an hour or two later and they're all perked up. And by two weeks, they're rooted and they're starting to grow. So then, you know, again, you could take that another two weeks from now and go, hey, you want to buy this for five bucks? You can sell it. So every time you make a pot of tea, if you make uh, five of these, which is what I'm doing, uh, when I make a gallon of tea, I make five of these. Theoretically, if I sold all five of them for five bucks, it'd be $25. If I sold them all for a dollar, if I sold them all for a dollar, I would just pay myself five dollars to make my tea. With zero inputs except the one thing you have to buy that I'm going to tell you about, and it's going to be pretty cheap. So that's how I make the plants. I take all the leaves that I strip off of the cuttings and put them into mason jars, ball jars. And I just tear up. And anything that's really big stem, I throw away. But I pull off all the leaves and stuff. And I make about three quart mason jars. About three quarters, pretty not tightly packed, but loosely packed full. That's about how much I use. And then I boil some water. And I fill each jar. This is just the easiest way for me to do this. And I have a one-gallon jug that we keep in the refrigerator with this tea in it. I let them sit there with the boiling water until they're about lukewarm, about an hour. And then you just take a strainer, and this is why this makes this real easy. You take a strainer and you just dump all three through the strainer. You end up with all the mint leaves for composting in the strainer. A few in the jar, rinse them out, boom. And those jars can be used over and over again. Could you get a three-quarter gallon container and do this all in one shot? Sure. I'm telling you how I do it. And then I take one more quart of water. Actually, while it's still warm, before I do this with the last quart of water, um, I take and I use, it's going to shock you, three tablespoons of white table sugar. Three tablespoons. That's it for a gallon. I put that in there and that mixes up and it dissolves like instantly. And then I put one more quart of just cool water in and I throw that in the refrigerator. Everybody that drinks this says, man, that's fantastic. And it's just a tiny hair bit sweet. Now, what does that evil sugar do to us? Um, that evil sugar, when you figure it out on an 8-ounce glass, puts about 9 calories to an 8-ounce glass of tea. 9 calories to an 8-ounce glass of tea. Barely 1 calorie per ounce. Now, I know you might think, well, why not just go completely sugar-free or use honey? We'll get to honey in a second. Because um, I love honey, but there's an issue here with calories. But let's first put this into context. What is 9 calories to 8 ounces comparable to? Let's compare that to having a Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola Classic. The red, white, and blue American cola of colas, right? 8 ounces of Coca-Cola Classic has 97 calories. To equal one, not a 12-ounce not a, a can, an 8-ounce glass of Coca-Cola. You would have to drink 10 8-ounce glasses of this tea to equal it in sugar. You know, ignore all the medicinal values, all the other things, whatever, how much more water you're consuming. You would have to drink 10. Dude, that's 80 ounces. I don't know how many of you put down 80 ounces in a couple hours, but you're probably peeing your brains out if you do. So in context, the, the, the amount of caloric intake is almost inconsequential. Because, I mean, I might drink a cup or two of this, and I'm done for a long time. You know, 18 calories isn't much. That's not 18 grams of sugar. That's 18 calories. And in the end, you have to have a certain amount of sugar to cause the insulin upswings and stuff like that. And this is not there. Now compare this to honey. I love honey. It tastes better. 
But to get the same amount of apparent sweetness, you have to double it. If I double the honey and put six tablespoons of honey in there, I get 383 calories. And roughly I'm up to about 16 to 18 calories a cup. So I double the sugar by going to honey. Another way around this, though, use three tablespoons of honey and a small amount of stevia. That will work, too. We often use the table sugar because it's quick, it's cheap, it's convenient, and it's inconsequential in the whole. Here's the interesting thing. You give somebody a cup of this tea, hot or cold, and they say, well, it's not very sweet. If they'll start drinking this as opposed to all the other sugary crap and get sugar out of their diet, all of a sudden like, man, this is really sweet because it's like using salt in food. If you use salt the right way in food, it's not just that it, it adds salt flavor. It actually extracts and, and, and brings to the front the other flavors of the food. Small amounts of sugar in things like mint and lemon bring the flavors of the mint and lemon, lemon to the front. And once you clear your palate of all this sugary crap, all of a sudden it's so refreshing and it tastes far sweeter than it is. And what I like about this tea is it's good hot or cold. And you notice I say make it a gallon at a time? That's the way to do it. The heck with one cup. Unless If you have it dried out and prepared, a tea ball and all, and you want to make a cup of tea on a spur, fine. But I think the way to make this is a gallon or more at a time. You put it in the refrigerator. You want hot tea? Pour a cup of it and throw it in the microwave. I don't know about you guys. I've done that with coffee. Coffee sucks heated back up. It does not taste the same. It's This, you wouldn't know the difference. If I made you a fresh cup or I heated up a cup, like that's great. So now I've got a gallon of this stuff sitting in the refrigerator. It lasts days and days and days. has very low caloric, very low sugar response, tastes great, and is a great alternative to coffee. And it helps me drink less coffee. Honestly, in some ways, it helps me drink less adult beverages. Because you're like hot and tired, and you're like, oh, I'll, start, I'll have a beer. It's, it's only 5 o'clock, but I'm going to have a beer. And when you drink alcohol, the earlier you start drinking a day, the more you may drink through the day, if that makes sense, you know. So if you don't have a beer till seven o'clock, you probably have two. Uh, but if you if you have you crack your first beer at four, you're probably killing a six pack if you're me anyway. So if I come in, I'm hot and sweaty and all, and I'm thinking, man, a cold beer would taste good. And then that's sitting there. It's like, wow, that's going to taste better. So I think it's a great thing to learn how to do. And I mean. Everybody in the world can grow that. And the beauty is not everybody will. So you can make some money selling it to people that want to grow it. And you can also sell the byproducts to people that don't want to do it for themselves. And then that can be a base. You could easily add goji berries to that. Dorothy wants to make dried versions of that and then just take a bit of, of chopped up dehydrated or freeze-dried strawberry, like Mountain House strawberries, and add that. Because when you rehydrate those, they dump their flavor into whatever liquid they're in. And then sell that as something people would make as a hot tea. So we could do that with uh, dehydrated blackberry. There's so many ways we could enhance that. Goji berries again. All right. So anyway, I know I went long with that, but I actually think that is like a great, simple thing to start. Like, So people say all the time, I can't do all the stuff you talk about. I have this little bitty house or an apartment. Anybody can have three pots of you know, peppermint, lemon balm, and bee balm. And a few other herbs to cook with. So just a little, almost a mini show there, huh? But I did promise you variety, so now I'm going to bring it to you in the form of a soundbite. This is actually from um, a, a website-reported uh, uh, thing on, on the NSA bulk collection data stuff. And uh, I want you to listen to this, and then I'm going to come back and tell you what they really said, like I'm accustomed to doing. So we'll have that for you here. We'll queue it up. Here we go. 
U.S. Senate may have voted to move forward with the Freedom Act Sunday, but controversial aspects of the Patriot Act have expired. Those aspects include the bulk collection of phone records, the lone wolf provision, which allows the government to surveil suspects who aren't directly tied to terrorist groups, and the roving wiretaps provision, which gives the government access to all of a suspect's communications under a single wiretap order. The Freedom Act, which is set for a vote on Tuesday, extends several provisions of the Patriot Act, but ends lawful justification of the NSA's infamous bulk collection of phone records. The Senate originally intended to expedite the Freedom Act, but the plan was brought to a halt when Senator Rand Paul promised to force the expiration of the NSA illegal spy program. The Senate can only speed up the lawmaking process if all senators agree. The act is widely expected to pass Tuesday. When it does, both the lone wolf provisions and roving wiretap provisions will be reinstated. And it's concessions like that that have left some activists unhappy with the Freedom Act. The Guardian quotes one advocate who says the bill which has been revised is a setback from the original. The Electronic Frontier Foundation, which once supported the bill, has since revised its stance to neutral. We think that Congress can do much better and should, but we're still now in a much better place than we've been since the 1970s with regard to congressional action reigning in the NSA. Nearly 15,000 sites have blocked IP addresses from Congress in protest of both the Patriot and Freedom Acts. Protesters say they'll continue to block congressional IPs until either the USA Freedom Act is either dramatically improved or dead, or until the Patriot Act provisions have sunset. For Newsy, I'm Micah Sargent. Okay, now, um, before I respond with what I, I think and feel about this, I'd like to use a little bit of pop culture to uh, to give you my overall feelings to any senator or congressman or the president or any member of the president's administration that's going to look us in the face and tell us that under these new provisions and these new situations that they will no longer perform bulk collection of our data uh, on phones and other places that they're doing this. Remember, the phones are only one place, and something tells me that, you know, anyway, this is from a movie that you may watch around the holidays. And generally, when you see it in a meme, there's one little phrase in it. I decided to bring about 20 seconds of it in, and... Anyway, I'll play it for you, and some of you will know immediately what it's going to be, and some of you will recognize it, but just listen to the whole thing. Don't tell him what you want. He's a liar. Let the kid talk. You disgust me. How can you live with yourself? Just cool it, Zippy. You sit on a throne of lies. Look, I'm not kidding. You're a fake. I'm a fake? Yes. How'd you like to be dead? Huh? No, he's kidding. You stink. I think... Uh, you know, when I when I first heard about this whole thing and the NSA being shut down and Obama giving the order, um, I immediately, when I saw things on it on Facebook, found a little Facebook meme, of course, the movie Elf, where Elf is confronting the, the fake Santa and says to him, you sit on a throne of lies. And that meme's been around forever, and I was posting that. So when I, I, I got a lot of questions this last week about what this actually means, especially over the weekend with this expiration of the Patriot Act. Um I thought to myself, you know, I got to put this in there. And then when I went to just find the soundbite of You Have a Throne of Lies, I, I found a little bit bigger part of the scene. And when I listened to that, my first thought was, yeah, this is exactly what I would want to tell uh, our, our Congress uh, and, and the President's administration and all of these things. Not only do you sit on a throne of, throne of lies, 
but you stink. You stink. You're a liar and you stink. That, that's, that, it, it was like, wow. And then I realized, like, there's a whole, there's a whole little, uh, soliloquy on statism here. Right? Do you hear what the authority figure says? How'd you like to be dead? A threat of violence. So, for questioning the illegitimate claim that this guy, now I know this is a fantasy movie, but in the fantasy movies, Santa's real and this dude isn't. For questioning the validity of a false claim, the response is a threat of violence. Just an interesting little side note there. Anyway, so my response is, yes, this is a throne of lies. This is not being shut down. And here's basically what you just heard. Well, we're still going to do this, and we're still going to do that, and we're still going to do this. And that's all going to be done under this new thing called the Freedom Act. But we're not going to do this anymore. Hold on a second. Do you remember how they said, oh, we're not doing that in the first place? All right, so here's, here's what just happened. Um, it's imagine you have a friend, you want to call him a friend, an acquaintance that you're not really fond of, but hangs out all the time. Maybe he's a, a rogue uncle. We'll call him Uncle Sam. And, and he has said, I'm going to be in your home, but and I'm going to be privy to everything that's going on in your home, but I won't put my ear up to the wall and listen to your conversations on the other side of the wall. And you say, well, I really would prefer that you weren't here at all, but at least you're not going to do that, so okay. And then he, he, over time, gets you to agree to some things, and there's a loophole in there that actually says now you've, you've actually said it's okay for him to do that. But you don't really realize that he still swears to God he's not doing it. And then, let's say, uh, I don't know, your, your Uncle Jefferson comes over and says, hey, dude, like, Uncle Sam's screwing you, man. He's... He's listening to you. And you said, well, he, he said he wasn't going to do that. And you say, look, here's a picture of him doing it. That would be, maybe we should call him Uncle Eric. Uncle Eric comes and says, look, here's, here's proof. He's doing what he said he's not doing. Right? And then Uncle Sam says, Uncle Eric is evil. And Eric has to run away because Uncle Sam's going to kill him if he doesn't run away. So Uncle Eric runs away. But you now find out, like, hey, you're doing this. And Uncle Sam says, Well, yeah, but you agreed to it. And you go, no, I didn't. And he goes, look here. And you go, son of a gun. I did agree to that. Hey, but this contract we signed, this expires soon. And Uncle Sam does everything he can to convince you that, that it's necessary to reinitiate the contract. And you say, you know what, we'll, we'll reinitiate certain provisions, but this one where you're allowed to put the glass up to the wall and listen to the wife and I talk at night in bed, yeah, we're not going to do that. And Uncle Sam says, okay, I won't do it anymore. Here's the new contract that says I'm not allowed to. You gotta trust them. Or would you say, you sit on a throne of lies. Get out of my house. The problem is, you can't get them out of your house. This is a lie. This is a fabrication. They are never going to stop the bulk collection of data. They will find every loophole they can. But here's what's going to happen now. Somebody somewhere will accomplish something that is bad. Somebody will shoot somebody, or somebody will harm somebody, or somebody, or they may even catch them in the nick of time. And they'll say, they almost got it done. We were so lucky. Or they did get it done. And what they're going to say is, had our hands not been tied by this. 
and they'll get some new version of it rammed through, and they'll probably call it, I don't know, the the allegiance to the patriotism of the United States of America Act or something like that. And you're against allegiance to the country because you're against this act. You're against freedom because you're against the Freedom Act. You're against patriot. You notice they always wrap these acts that do the opposite of what they say in the antonym of what they say they do. Right, So the Patriot Act is designed to surveil not the people outside the country that want to do us harm, but it's our own citizens. And we call that patriotism. Right, The, the, the reauthorization uh, of most of these draconian powers, uh, which takes away liberty, is therefore called freedom. So the antithesis of liberty would be tyranny. But instead of calling it the Tyranny Act, we call it a synonym, freedom. So if you are not for this Freedom Act, you are, you are against freedom. See, that's that's how we sell this to you. But do you really think they're just going to shut everything down? And they, basically, if you read into this, it says like they, they're they're slowly shutting down the servers and they're notifying the providers that they can't provide them data anymore and they can't send them information. And basically, they're leaving everything in place. It's a controlled stall, and I don't even know if it's that. Let's assume that it is. Fine, that will just be what they use to make their case of why they need the power again. They will never stop doing this. They will come up with new ways to do this, um, and, and it's never going away I, I, until such time as we completely retake the country, which isn't going to happen probably in our lifetimes because most people, believe it or not, like it this way. Most people want it this way. Most people just want to believe this stuff. They want to believe that without the ability to surveil your Aunt Edna and, and who she texts a picture to, that Ahmed from ISIS will put a bomb in your underwear. They want to believe that because it makes them feel like all of the things that they know in their heart are wrong are okay. It's okay to do this. It's okay. We can have a presidential candidate in Chris Christie say that in this case we do indeed need to sacrifice liberty for safety, and that's okay. That's okay. It's not okay. We've been told that the terrorists attack our freedom, but to combat the terrorists, we must give up our freedom, or the terrorists win. No, then the terrorists win. If we are so reactionary, and I want to tell you part of what's made me swing on this whole thing over the years. I remember very clearly driving in my car, I had a Dodge Intrepid, at the time, from the company I worked for, Fluke Networks. And I remember driving in my car on my way to Rhode Island for a, a, a trade show we shouldn't have done because the attendance was terrible because it was a week after 9-11. It was a week later. Um, and I remember driving up the, the freeway on the opposite side of the river in New Jersey looking over at the smoking towers and smelling, and if you've never worked in electronics and been where electronics have overheated, you don't know what I'm talking about, but when you have electronics burning and insulation from cables burning and things like that, when you breathe in, it actually hurts your lungs. It's incredibly toxic. It's incredibly toxic, and the only time I'd ever smelled it that harsh before was inside what's called a cable head end which is like where all your equipment and the air conditioner failed in there, and it was like 105 degrees out in Texas summer, and all the equipment started cooking itself. And we, we had to pull the air conditioner out of the back wall to get a new one and open the doors, put fans on, and we saved all but a couple of pieces of equipment. But I that was the same lung-biting 
acrid stench. And on the radio was a, a, a radio host talking to a caller who was saying all these things they were already putting into position with screening at the airlines and all was a slippery slope that would head us toward a world we would not recognize in 10 years. And that simple things like taking away somebody's fingernail clippers was a prelude to where we were going. And the radio host crapped all over the guy and said, this is not the time for that. That's not what this is about. We need to do whatever is necessary to protect our citizens right now. And I remember thinking how smart that radio caller or the radio host was and how stupid the caller was. I just lost friends. People tell me, you don't understand. I lost friends. I lost friends, guys. Okay. I managed New York City. Some of my biggest customers had presences in the trade towers. One company that was my client, 19 of their employees died. Don't give me your bullshit like it's magical that you lost somebody in, in all of this. Because I did too. And I remember thinking, you know what, their lives. And I remember thinking how crazy like this tin hat caller would be to like right now be saying this was all going to happen. And then between now and that date, I have watched the erosions of liberty just one after the other, after the other. And even when they do something that we think is bad, they say, but we're not doing this. Then you find out they are. Indeed, they sit on thrones of lies. And this is not going away. If you think this is a victory, it is only a victory on the marketing front. And it will actually, I think, lead to greater tyranny because so many people who are beginning to wake up We'll go, oh, we've done that now. They've listened, and they'll go back to sleep. And you notice how President Obama is acting as if this is a good thing, and he embraced it, and it was his idea. It wasn't his idea. If, if he wanted to not use these provisions, it was within his power to have not used them for a long time. And you will hear both sides claim victory when they've lost a little bit of what they both wanted. But promise you, I promise you, something is going to happen, and you're going to see this is going to become major, major news now. Major news now, guys. Uh, telling us how awful this all is. Uh, this will now take center stage with mainstream media news for at least three to four weeks. This is one of your next cycles of propaganda. Watch it happen. And if it doesn't, come tell me I'm wrong. Remind me, and I'll say, you know what? I was wrong. I got it wrong. Or 30 days from now, let's revisit this and see if this is what happened. With that, let's take another one. The next thing I want to revisit with you guys we've talked about quite a bit lately is standardized testing. This, this bit of feedback actually comes as a comment on the blog from SPR61. And SPR61 says, in regards to standardized testing and a call that we had about it on 522 on uh, Listener Call Show, said, I couldn't agree more about the brainwashing and stress from this ridiculous testing. Both my children were straight A students. My son is so stressed about taking these national bullshit tests that he can barely sleep, despite the fact that he has straight A's. He's actually been told he will not move to the sixth grade if he fails the national standardized test. How can you tell a child that? When he is excelling at the school's grading standard, my daughter has frankly given up and has gone from A's to B's and C's. She asks me, what's the point? With the system of, of retards we have, it's difficult to argue. I only wish I had the ability to homeschool. 
I, I understand when people say they can't, and I, I don't know that I could have. I mean, knowing what I know now, I think I would have made a hell of an effort to try to do it, but I understand why people say they can't do it. It's hard. And, and honestly, the lower your income bracket, the more difficult it tends to be, unless you're like the quintessential homesteader, farmsteader, where most of what you're doing is on the home anyway. I think so. We, we have this divide. It's like the affluent um, and the, the, the upper middle class can do this, Uh, especially if the majority of the income is a single breadwinner, and the the lower tiers that have learned to make do with what they have, but it's this whole rambling of the majority of the middle class and to the, down to the poor that are you know urbanized poor uh, and suburbanized poor that that you know the working poor they can't figure out how they could possibly do this. And I know I'm going to hear from people that go, yeah, I had it tough, but we figured out how to do it. Great for you. Great for you. But don't crap on the people that, that, that can't make it work in their situation. You have not walked one single step in their shoes, let alone a mile in their moccasins. Just please try to remember that when we crap on other people's decisions to continue to do things we've now chosen to abstain from. Please try to remember that. So I understand wishing you could, but I mean, my my call out, then I've, I've, I've kind of purified that so that it's not taken wrong by the commenter. To everybody, if you can, and if you can figure out any way to give your child an alternative to these indoctrination centers, do it. The colleges are now valuing the students with non-traditional educations higher than those with the traditional educations. And so are major employers like Google. People are starting to care about what the kid knows as he goes into those formative years, those you know late teens, early 20s, than what, what the kid's pedigree to getting that knowledge is. In fact, they're actually starting to say that the non-traditional learner that can prove themselves is more valuable because they know they're an independent thinker that can get shit done. Okay, so there's there's the stigma that that's been tried to attempt to be painted there is dying anywhere. But here's my bigger problem with this, and this is my problem with standardized testing because I've seen this with my son, and people always think when you're talking about your child that you've got tunnel vision. My son was the same way. He was an A student, occasionally a B. He got upset when he got a B. And he would be sitting around worrying about this. At the time, it was called the Texas Star Test. I think that's what it's still called. I'm not sure. And I, I, would, I told this kid, every year, that test is not for you. It's for your teacher. If you are an A student and you fail that test, it means your teacher failed, not you. Stop worrying about this. And it was after he got out of high school that his opinion actually changed somewhat sort of kind of positive on the Star Test. He said, you know what, if you can't pass that test, you don't need to graduate. It's easy. But it takes a little reminder of a person once they get out from under the stress of what it was like. Do you, do you remember the years of this? Yeah, I do. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Right? And now that he's got a kid coming up, it's like, do you really want to let your kid go through this? Do you want to worry about this? And that's why I'm opposed to this. If you have students with A's and B's, and for that matter, A's, B's, and a few C's, They can't pass your standardized test. The standardized test is the problem. And the thing is, the kids can pass it. You, you don't see students with A's, B's, and C's failing standardized tests. They don't fail. So, Jack, what's the problem? Why are we stressing them the hell out? And I want to say the F out with the full word. Why are we taking these young children and putting them through this bullshit to feed our own egos about how good our school system is that we all know sucks? Why would we do this to our children? Why are we letting them do this to our children? Well, we don't have a choice. Oh, contrary, in this instance, we have a choice. 
If every parent that was pissed off at this went down to the next school board meeting, all of you guys got together, made phone calls, got everybody together, explained this problem, and you showed up with enough parents to tell the school board, you guys get this out of our schools or next election, all of you are fired. I will vote for a dog over you. Here's We're all here. This is a local school district. These are parents from a local school district. And we are going to get our people that usually don't even bother to vote, and we're going to come down here and say, Jack, aren't you the guy that said not to vote? No, friends, no. I'm the one that said in the general election last cycle I wasn't going to vote because my vote didn't matter. This, you want to vote? You want to get something done? This is anti-authority. right? This is where I am politically active. If we can strip or remove powers from government or use one lower level of government to push back up on a higher level of government and get rid of something that government uses for authority, I'm all about that. I'm all about the the negative, the negative issuance of force against government to remove their ability to do something. All about it. It could be done. And there's, I guarantee you, if enough parents were contacted in any given school district, explain, it is the A and B students who are at wake at night, and they would think to themselves, you know what, my kid's all stressed about this. And, and when they realize it's not just your kid, because there's a parent's think, well, they, you know, it's my kid, they get upset about stuff. And all. When they realize like, it's everybody's doing this, it might start to make sense. And I'm telling you, the, the individual school districts could do something about it. They can just say, we're not doing that. Now what they're going to say is, well, they're going to take our federal money. Tell them, you know what? You can either have the federal money or you can have your cush job. Which one do you want it to be? Because all of a sudden, if school districts start doing this everywhere, the, the federal government wants to keep its hooks in these schools. It's not cutting the federal money off. It's, it's, it's you sit on a throne of lies. They're not going to cut the funding. One school does it, they'll do it. Briefly. And then the local news station will come down there and talk about the poor children and the money will come back anyway. Right? But if a hundred school districts do this in a, in a single state, the state's going to have to go, you know what, we're going to have to do something about that. We're going to have to strengthen opt-out. You start pushing up instead of down. All right? It doesn't always work. Remember I said about pattern recognition, pay attention. It's, we're not there yet. But just pay attention. So my big concern with these standardized tests is what we're doing to the children. Now, here's another little bit of pattern recognition. What have I been telling you that schools are really all about, especially when you look at it from the federal policy level? The programming of children to accept the authority, power, and control of the state. Do you want to know the biggest reason these kids are freaked out about these tests? It comes from a higher authority. This is what you're telling a kid who's in fifth grade getting straight A's in Mrs. Johnson's class. When Mrs. Johnson says, now remember, Timmy, if you don't pass this test... You don't go to the sixth grade. Okay, Mrs. Johnson has given Timmy an A on everything he's ever turned in. So is his other teachers when they change classes. And his school is familiar to him. He gets his school. He understands his school. He understands and respects the authority of his teachers, the classroom, the procedures in his school. What you're saying, and kids start to figure this out about fifth grade, there is someone with more authority than us who has handed this down. And even if we don't like it, we all have to shut up and do it. You tell me what we're programming those children to believe by the time that they're young adults when we say that some asshat, in my instance in Austin, or for those that have bought into Common Core even worse, Washington, D.C., can prevent Timmy from graduating the fifth grade from Washington, D.C., even though his teacher says you get an A. 
Even though he passes and graduates anyway, the concept that someone individually had the authority and the proper authority to interfere with your own life from 2,000 miles away, it is disgusting, it is reprehensible, and it needs to be stabbed in the heart, killed like a vampire, and buried in the ground. And the reason I don't talk about it more is because I want the whole system gone anyway. I'm not worried about standardized testing because I think the entire public education system is about to fall flat on its ass anyway. But as long as it's still here, if you have a kid in school and you're not doing something about this crap, I want you to think about what it does to your kid. And if it doesn't even bother your kid that much, next time you drop them off at school, you look at all those other kids running around, realize probably half of them have trouble sleeping because of this bullshit that's not necessary. Just think about that. It's very hard for people like me to do anything about this issue now. School districts aren't really interested in what non-parents have to say. You know, Even my grandson's going to be going to school 10 districts away from here. There's not a lot I can do about it. They listen to parents that show up at school board meetings. Show up in force. You want to say, I want to, you know, you get, those of you that get upset with me over not voting, do you think voting changes that? It only changes it if the vote is a threat and the threat is made real. Those people in those positions want to keep their jobs, folks. Get their attention. That's one way to do it. Take your kid out. That's another way to do it. There's there's a there's a hundred ways to skin this cat. If there's an opt-out provision, use it. If your child can be opted out of standardized testing and you don't do it, and by the way, tell all of their friends' parents why they should do it too, that's too easy to have an excuse not to do. That's too easy. Now, if you think they're a good thing, ignore everything I said. Fine. You want to believe that this stuff makes sense? Fine. I'm not going to tell you anything. But if you object to it, but yet you don't use the provision to remove your child from it, what the hell is wrong with you? You understand the difference there between, okay, you think it's a good thing, you want to put your, the kid's your kid, you run your household your way, you do what you want to do. You think it's good for them, it prepares them, it teaches them to struggle through adversity or whatever, you know, unicorn farting uh, propaganda you want to believe. I don't care. You have that right to believe that. But if you are one of the people, like many of us, who say this is wrong, and your kid has to do it, and there's a provision to remove your child from it, and you don't act on it, what you're basically saying is, I don't like living in this cell, and even though they open the door for me, I'm not willing to walk out the door. And even though my kid is willing to walk out the door, I'm going to hold them in here with me. Doesn't make any sense, does it? Again, I want you to understand, the children that are the most affected negatively by these standardized tests are the very children that have absolutely no need of them and always pass them. Do you think it's good? Do you think it's good with all the other shit that's going on in the life of a, a kid that's at the age of 6th grade, 7th grade, 8th grade, all the crap they have to deal with in school already, trying to fit in, trying to be popular, being picked on, trying to be you know whatever they want to be, all the homework. These kids are getting two, three, four hours of homework a damn day now. What the hell do they do while they're in school? All that other shit on top of them, and we're just going to add this when there's no need for it. It is, in my opinion... It is another action of the government of this nation that is literally criminal and it is victimizing the weakest among us. It sickens me. But let's go on to something else because I don't want to blow a gasket on a Monday. Let's go to something totally different here. Um, 
I want to talk about an article that's been around for almost a month now. I've been getting it and getting it and getting it and getting it. And I've, I've actually tried to avoid really talking about it because I, I, I figured that people will eventually figure this one out for themselves. But, but I don't think they will. I don't think they'll ever figure this out for themselves. And it ain't what you think it is. And Wired and, and several other magazines have written on this, including uh, people who have written about it uh, as it pertains to General Motors. So let me read you the article first here, if you haven't heard it yet. Um, we can't let John Deere destroy the very idea of ownership. It's official. John Deere and General Motors want to eviscerate the notion of ownership. Sure, we pay for their vehicles, but we don't own them. Not according to their corporate lawyers, anyway. In particular, spectacularly display of corporate delusion, John Deere, the world's largest agricultural machinery maker, told the Copyright Office that farmers don't own their traffic because computer code snakes through the DNA of modern tractors. Farmers receive an implied license for the life of the vehicle to operate the vehicle. It says John Deere's tractor, folks, you're just driving it. Um, several manufacturers recently submitted similar comments to the Copyright Office under an inquiry into the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. The MCA is a vast 1998 copyright law that, among other things, governs the blurry line between software and hardware. The Copyright Office, after reading the comments and holding a hearing, will decide in July which high-tech devices we can modify, hack, and repair, and decide whether John Deere's twisted vision of ownership will become a reality. Okay, let's stop right there. Okay, you can read the rest of this crap if you want to. This is an example of a writer either intentionally being an idiot or just being an idiot. One or the other. It's, it's your choice. Now, I know some of you have read this article. You've bought into it. You, you, you don't understand what I'm saying. And the reason that's probably the case is because you've read it as it's pre presented by the author. It's in a legitimate publication. It seems to make sense. And we're used to being screwed over by corporatism, right? We really are. We're used to this. We expect this. We have all have a perception bias. If somebody says a corporate entity, a giant company must be doing some evil, they're probably doing it. And John Deere is not, you know, an innocent little bystander in the, the, this world of abuses. They are one of, uh, one of the companies that profits the most from our wartime activities, even though you don't understand why that's the case, and I don't have time to go into it today. But they really do. They get, they maintain huge profits based on this nation's use of force around the world. Oh, I thought that was Halliburton. I'll do it in a different day. Trust me here. But in this case, this is stupidity. This is not what's happening. Every single manufacturer of just about any kind of vehicle or complicated piece of equipment today develops software for that piece of equipment. And they put that software into that equipment so that it will run and function, etc. Compounding this issue are numerous government regulations about things like with a tractor or a car, emissions. And then safety things, response times, braking capabilities, etc. That code controls all of that stuff for that vehicle. Now, additionally, If you know anything about computer code, when you start jacking with code way over here, it tends to have effects way over there that you're not aware of. So, is it true that we pretty much accept under our current system, whether you think it should be or not, that if I develop software, I own it and I have a right to license it, and when you license it, you get certain provisions to go with that license? Yes or no? The answer would be yes. So, if I put that software into a tractor or a car... 
Does that change anything about the nature of that software and the licensing that goes with it? The answer is no. Okay. So additionally, vehicle manufacturers and equipment manufacturers like John Deere or General Motors issue warranties with their equipment. Okay. And they are things like it will continue to perform at the agreed upon specified levels. It will continue to conform to legal requirements. When you jack around with the code in that vehicle, you can change that. And what they're saying is, you can't blame us because you played with the code and you ain't supposed to. You, you hack your car? No one's coming to your house to arrest you for hacking your car. Do I think it's obscenely impossible for that ever to be the case? No, I think that could be the case someday. But that's not going to be under copyright. That's going to be under your car no, no longer conforms to the laws that the, the federal authorities or state authorities said they're supposed to. Okay. Um, now, I don't think anybody would think that it would be legitimate that because you bought a John Deere tractor that you should be able to extract the code, modify it, and resell it. Okay. That, that, I think most people would go, that would be the same as like me uh, extracting Windows code off my desktop modifying it, calling it Jack Super Duper Window Code, and reselling it. Right? And I know there's people that are advocates of open source and think that all should be legal, but we accept that that is illegal under our system. Okay, And I'm not saying it should be. Again, I'm just saying that it is. And this is not anything dramatic or new or anything most of you weren't aware of in the past, that, it, that that would be considered illegal. Extracting the Windows code off my desktop, hacking it up, making it what I call better, and putting it out as Jack Super Duper Improved Window Code and selling it. And selling my own versions of it. That would not be cool with you. Okay? Um, that's what this is. This is General Motors. This is John Deere saying there's software in that hardware. And we own the hardware, or we own the software. You've purchased the hardware. The hardware is yours. The software is ours. But you have an implied license for your lifetime of ownership. In other words, you can do whatever the hell you want. But you can't resell or manipulate or change the code with no consequence. So what would be a consequence? You take your GM car, you chip it with a new chipset to make it go faster, and it fails an emissions test, and you take it back to the GM dealership, and they say, not our problem. And you say, but I de-chipped it and put it back the way it was, and now it doesn't work. I want you to make it work under the warranty. Nope. We'll make it work, assuming you didn't damage it, but we're going to charge you for it. That would be one of the consequences of it. You lease a vehicle, where you never owned it in the first place, you play around with the software, you take it back in to exchange the lease as a pre-agreed-upon pre value of the vehicle, uh, based on it being returned in a certain condition. It's no longer in that condition. You don't get your pre-agreed-upon value because you jacked with the code. That's what this is about. This was never about telling you you don't own your car or your tractor. This is either incompetent or irresponsible journalism by Wired. You take your pick. And this is another one of those things. If you wanted to set up a legitimate debate under the organized international rules of debate with a third-party moderator and make the case on the other side that this provision of licensing software that's on your vehicle means you don't own your vehicle, I will take on any comer and I will slam dunk this. Because it's just been presented to you in a way that makes you feel like, ah, it must be true. But it's not. And this has been the way it's been for as long as there's been software in cars and trucks and tractors. And by the way, that's longer than most of you think. Those good cars back in the 70s, they had computer software in them. 
Not to the level they do today, but it was also with an implied license that you bought your 1975 uh, Pontiac Grand Prix. And if you played with that software and in 1976 brought it into the Pontiac dealer and said, hey, what the hell's the deal? You voided the warranty. And if you had stripped the software off and then modified it and sold it to someone like Isuzu, that would be a violation of copyright law. You don't own software. Again, I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm saying you don't. I'm all for an open source model. I really am. I'm completely and totally for it, especially with things like information that can be replicated for nothing. We, I, I, I think it's a great idea, but it's not the system we live in, and it doesn't have anything to do with ownership of a vehicle. So, now you know. And knowing is half the battle. <laughs> little insider joke for the Facebook followers there. Anyway, uh, let's take another. All right, so here's another story that's got a lot of people really, really upset, um, especially environmentalists. And a lot of people you wouldn't think of that, that were um, upset about this. They're not necessarily environmentalists, but they don't like the activity going around uh, around them. And then there's a lot of people that just think, well, why the hell can't this be done? So let me read this one to you. Um, New Texas law enables driller to frack gas wells in Denton for the first time since the city ban. Denton, Texas, AP, a North Texas city whose fracking ban prompted state lawmakers to limit such local power, says a driller has revealed plans to resume fracking gas wells in the city. According to documents obtained through open records requests, the Denton Record Chronicle reports that Vantage Energy notified the city early Tuesday of its plans to begin fracking on Denton's west side beginning next Wednesday. The notice came the morning after Republican Governor Greg Abbott signed the bill into law Monday afternoon that limits local authority to restrict fracking. During the last November election, Denton voters banned fracking within borders of the city about 125,000 residents, eliciting immediate vows by oil and gas drillers to topple that ban. The state and the drillers filed lawsuits. The legislature fulfilled the drillers' vows last week. The Denton ban remains on the books, but Mayor Chris Watts says the new state law likely renders it unenforceable and would probably stymie any effort to block Vantage plans to finish the gas well. It is my understanding that we don't plan on seeking an injunction, Watts told the Record Chronicle. As the lawsuit's still on the court docket, city officials will be discussing those soon, Watts said. Where we go from here hasn't been determined. A call for an email to Vantage Energy spokeswoman by the Associated Press were not returned. As for the grassroots fight in Denton against fracking, frack-free Denton President Adam Bingle says that will continue. We cannot say how the story will unfold, but we do know this dark chapter shall not be the last one written, he said. Don't bet on that. Anyway, um, I want to tell you the story of a couple really good friends uh, of mine that we just recently had dinner with, and both of them were at least tacitly fans of Governor Rick Perry, and they're very upset with Governor Abbott here in Texas now because Governor Abbott signed this bill as though Rick Perry wouldn't have. Rick Perry would have pushed this bill through. And it's interesting that people like, well, the last guy was better than this guy, right? Even though this guy's doing a lot of things they want him to do. Like, you really think Rick Perry wouldn't have signed this? Jeez, really? Come on. This case is about state rights, not individual rights, okay? At least that's his marketing for the, the time being anyway. So that, that was just an interesting aside to me right there. Um, but I don't think people realize what you're actually seeing here politically. And I don't mean 
from a you know typical Jack Spirico analysis of politics, right? I go in with my opinion about what's right and wrong and 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 what I think needs to be done and, and what have you. I mean a technical political analysis here. What you're seeing is a head-to-head budding of two different forms of democracy. Representative democracy and direct democracy. Now it's interesting that the majority of people that are upset over this, that are educated people anyway, and politically informed, are very hip on the idea of representative democracy. In other words, this is a republic not a democracy. You've heard that argument time and time again. While technically accurate, it's actually technically wrong at the same time. This is not a pure republic, and it is not a pure democracy. It is a representative democracy in the form of a republic. That's what this country is. Guess what the example of direct democracy is here? A small group of people voting for how their individual area will be run, That's a and voting on the individual issue. That's a direct democracy. Do we or do we not have this in our town? We do. Yes, we don't. No. Uh, No wins. We don't have this in our town. That is direct democracy in action. As a republic that democratically elects our, our governors, okay, what we are supposed to have is a representative democracy limiting the powers of uh, a representative democracy and limiting the powers of direct democracy. In other words, you can't go passing a law that says no black people are allowed in your town. That would be simply because you have a majority that says so you can do that. So a, the higher level of government in a republic steps in and says, hold on. That's not, that's not how we do things here. <laughs> so there's your pattern. Did you see it? Did you connect this to the first story? Did you? Did you connect this to changing the context when we talked about the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag? And how would you feel about it if we put it on the books today for the first time? In the same way that it was fully, with full information, and everybody knew about it today, the way it happened over 100 years ago. What about this? What if we changed the context of what the vote was about? What if the city of Denton had said, through a direct democratic process, we are going to ban the possession and ownership of guns in Denton. Okay, and the Texas state legislature came in and said, "Oh no, 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 no! You're not. Gonna, we're going to ban the banning of guns." And I know what you'll say. You know what, though, Jack, that would have been unconstitutional on two levels. It would have been completely unconstitutional because, well. The, the right to keep and bear arms is protected under the federal and the state constitution. And therefore, the legislator would have been acting constitutionally. And, okay, I'll, I'll give you that. We'll come up with another example here in a second. But I, that doesn't really matter. Because that's probably not how you would have framed it. You would have said it was outrageous to ban guns. And therefore, it's good that the state overturned it. And then maybe if forced to, you'd go in and do the critical analysis some of you I know would do the, the, you're getting accustomed to critical analysis. You would have done it, but most people wouldn't. They would just have a knee-jerk reaction to it. It's in the Constitution. Okay, so let's, let's do some that's not in the Constitution. Directly this way then. What if in the city of Denton, and this happened in Mansfield as well, they, they were just about to get their ban in place and it got shot down by this, and that's where my friends are from that are upset. Um, but what if Denton or Mansfield or any other city in Texas or any other state for that matter, um, started to see a bunch of gardens 
pop up all over the place. You know, and garden clubs and commerce being built. And the city didn't like it. They thought it hurt property values or whatever. And the city realized they had like no way to enforce this. So they got a consensus. They got at least 51% of people to pass a measure in their town that said no more gardens and no more direct sales of produce in the town. And what if the state legislature looked at that and said, you know what? That, that's an infringement on these individuals' rights to their property. It's an infringement on their rights to commerce. So we're going to pass the Right to Small Scale Farming Act of the state of Texas. And we're going to ban individual towns from using direct democracy and our representative democracy from banning this clearly not harmful behavior. You'd say, well good for them. You probably would. You, now, some of you are kind of purist libertarians, and you'd say, oh, I'm not, I'm not cool with that. First of all, I don't think there should be government doing any of those things, but if people want to self-organize at a small level and not affect a larger level, that's fine. It, you know, They can do their own thing. Maybe you'd say, well, they should do that through you know, private HOAs or something like that, which many of them do. Now, you notice that in this instance, okay, Passing the state law that would forbid the lower forms of government from banning the gardening and the sale of produce wouldn't affect an HOA. An HOA is a voluntary association. You voluntarily choose to have more government in your life because I guess you just can't get enough of it. That's what HOAs are for. If you like HOAs, what you're saying is federal, state, local, county, all these laws, not enough. I need more. Okay. If that's you and you want to go off and do your bullshit there, go ahead. Please get the hell away from the rest of us. But I think if we change the context, there's a lot of places where you would say the state acted correctly. Now, I know what you're going to say if you're environmentally conscious. Fracking is bad. Okay. But how does that work with all of the things we just covered? Maybe it's still fracking is bad, it's good to fight it at the local level, and then we should continue the fight and force a showdown. Fine. But a knee-jerk reaction to the state is wrong here I think the state's always wrong most of the time. But under the current system, under a technical analysis of legal workings, there's a lot of people in Denton who have signed leases with the gas producers who are being paid a royalty. And by the local ban on fracking, their right to sell their gas that's under their house to the person that already agreed to pay for it is being infringed upon. But fracking just shouldn't be there. I'm not saying it should be there. I'm saying that it is legal currently to do this practice. And under that reality, in a representative democracy, you have a legal issue that most people that are immediately jumping on you know, the state legislature in the gov. And by the way, the, the, this is funny. I thought my friends jumped all over the governor as though like he just did it. Right, like when Rick Perry signed the thing about the you know Gardasil vaccine, he did it alone. It wasn't an executive order. This was passed by the state senate and the state house. Right, this is democracy in action. This is a Republican action. This is what it looks like. This is a different way to see local versus state or state versus federal politics. Whose rights are really being interfered with? It's interesting. Because if 
the people of Denton hadn't initially signed the contracts for the gas exploration to be done and leased it out, they wouldn't be there anyway. So what do I think should be done about fracking? I am personally undecided, but I lean toward we shouldn't do it. Ban is not maybe the word that I'm looking for, but because, um, again, we're back to government, and I'm not big on government solutions. But I think that environmentally, I far lean toward that there are serious consequences to doing this, that, that back when it all started, I didn't understand myself, and I, I do understand now. And I think there are all, like, all these little mini earthquakes and stuff like that going on, and they all have nothing to do with fracking. Uh, yeah, I, I know it's a causational relationship, but it's awfully... It's awfully causational, and it seems to follow everywhere that they do it, right? So I'm not for fracking. I'm not necessarily opposed to it. My answer right now is I don't know yet. And I know my pay grade, and influencing that is not something I'm going to do. I, I have a big issue in many ways with multiple ways that we extract, extract and refine fossil fuels. I think we're creating a tremendous amount of Of, of pollution, and we're doing a tremendous amount of harm to our environment with these substances, but I also know they're keeping billions of people alive. And I, I know the fundamental reality is we ain't going to be off them in the next 10, 15 years. That this is a 50 to 60 to 70 year transition to getting us to a place where we can provide the majority of our energy from regenerative and at least sustainable engine and energy products. So I'm a realist there. So it's got to come from somewhere. And so the question is, does the fracking do more damage than being dependent on foreign energy does? And I don't know the answer to that yet. But if I could, if you said, Jack, if you push this button, fracking will go away and we'll still be able to get the energy we need. Push that button in a heartbeat. Push this button and companies will get two years to figure out how to do it without fracking. I think they might shit a solution if they had to. But government banning something, I think we have enough government banning stuff. I really do. I, I don't really know how to feel, because this is one of those things I'd like to see it go away, but it's in conflict with my principles of, 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 of true free market economics. Though I have to say this, I, I think this is an interesting one, because if Tom lives in the middle of a neighborhood and he doesn't want to sell his gas to the gas company, he really has no way to prevent them from buying it, assuming that enough of his neighbors agree. They'll just not pay him for his share. It's, it's a place where things get very gray very fast. And again, I don't know exactly how much harm is being done to the planet through the process of fracking, but I know some is. Again, the question is, would, would using oil from Nigeria do more harm to the planet as a whole? Again, I don't know the answer to that yet. This is one of those things I'm still researching myself. But it's not perfectly safe, and it's not perfectly pollution-free the way that you're being marketed to that it is. But I think the bigger story here, again, is that context. If we change the issue, and the state banned banning of something else, might you be okay with what all of a sudden you're not okay with it? Is that one of the catch-22s of the state running things in the first place? What if everybody had direct democracy, if you want to call it, by whatever assemblage they chose to in their own individual areas, but couldn't influence people outside of a certain reach? And they couldn't make anybody stay, or they couldn't make anybody come there. It's kind of the world I'd like to see develop. I don't think we're ready for it yet. 
But that, to me, is the, the human ideal of true liberty and freedom. Let's take another one. Let's finish up with a gun question. Uh, this was actually sent in for a council member, and I may refer it on later once that council member catches up with uh, some of the other questions that they have on the, on the plate. But I'm going to answer this one today. Um, background. I'm an untrained civilian goofball, so somebody reads Glenn Tate there, um, that has been getting into shooting the past couple of years. I'm looking for a rifle to use for longer distances, 500 to 800 yards, that will cost a reasonable amount, sub $1,500. Be accurate enough that I won't constantly be wondering if my large pattern is because of the rifle or my shooting. I prefer to get a semi-auto, even if it costs more, but not a huge expense, a uh, huge expense to accuracy. Should I stick with a standard bolt action like the Remington 700, or can I get a decent um, se uh, semi-auto like the Smith and Wesson M&P 10? What rifles would you recommend, Monty? Okay, the first thing I want to do is I want to examine before I answer the question: What are your personal motivations? And do you have the facilities to consistently go out and actually practice and shoot at 500, 800 yards? If the motivations are when the zombies come and the, the shit is the fan and the end of the world occurs, I want a sniper rifle to protect my house, just put everything away and go back to living your life. Because that's not going to work. Um, and at, 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 at most, what a person would need Even with that application of logic, there is the shit at the fan. I am going to have to use long distance uh, assaults on an enemy. It is the ability to consistently shoot accurately to two to three hundred yards. That's as far as you're going to see to shoot unless you're a sniper setting up a shot off a ridge top, which you're not going to do ever, 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 unless you become one and, and go somewhere where they send you to do that. Ever. Infinity. Ever. Okay? It's not saying that it's not a valuable skill. It's not fun to do. I'm going to get to that in a second. But So if that were the case, then if you know what the hell you're doing, iron sights on an AR-15 or an AR-10 are all you need. You know, We routinely shot targets at 300 meters with M16s in the military firing a .223 with iron sights. This was before everybody had a, you know, a, a, a scope on their military weapon. Right? Back when I was, when I was in the military... The only people with anything approaching optics were people doing night patrol with night vision scopes, and they were huge back then, by the way, massive, uh, or actual snipers. And no one in my unit other than for night patrols, and you just kind of put this thing up on the top of your M16, had anything approaching optics. And again, the thing that went on the M16 wasn't even zeroed. And it was, it was really for night vision and having it where it was on the weapon. Because if you're performing guard duty, you had to shoot somebody at the distance. You point the weapon at them and shoot them. At least you could see them. Okay? So we can handle actual long-distance shooting and engaging an enemy to reasonable distances that even in the most far-fetched Mad Max scenario you're ever going to do with stock equipment. A Savage 110 308 with a $50 Redfield will do that all day long. Okay? And a good Savage Bolt Action in 306 or 308 with a good quality scope, a mid-priced $150 scope, will do everything you want to do if you'll settle for a Bolt Action. Is a Remington 700 or Winchester 70 maybe a better gun? Maybe. 
I'm not so sure. Savages, especially old school, ugly, lug nut savages, are one of the most inherently accurate out of the box rifles I've ever seen. The newer ones with the AccuTrigger and R, they're, they're exceptional, but you're not gonna, you're not really much of a, of a financial advantage once you get into some of these newer uh, guns that Savage is making. But going to an old gun, you know, gun show and looking on the used tables, you can find, you know, these older school Savages that are 10, 15 years old with a scope sitting on them, sometimes a decent scope for $300, $350. I have a, a Savage Model 110 in 308 Winchester um, with a, I think it's a Simmons scope that I put about 70 bucks into on it. I think I got the rifle for a trade of a rifle that was worth about $300, so call it $370 uh, total into it. Um, and that thing will just flat out take your teeth out of 300 yards. So we don't have to spend a lot of money to be able to do this. Now, the whole is a good bolt action more accurate than a good semi-auto. Assuming they're both good quality guns, maybe, but not enough to matter for your skill level or mine. Okay, And I'm not bragging, but I was an expert rifleman in the Army. And it's not enough to make a dramatic difference, especially in hitting the size targets you're shooting at at 800 meters, to matter. You're not going to go shoot in the Wimbledon Cup or anything like that. And if you do, you're not going to do it with a $1,500 rifle. So we can just scale everything way back right there and say, hey, you know, pick up a good 30 cal, 06, 308, something like that. 308 would give you a lot of match ammo to play around with that's already preloaded for you, uh, more so than the 06. Uh, the 06 gives you a little bit more downrange energy at those distances. I mean, if I really wanted to shoot 800 meters... I would go with something like, oh, I don't know, like a a a three thirty eight Winchester or something like that. Just, just or a thirty three three a thirty three thirty eight, where they take the three thirty eight and neck it down to thirty caliber. Or um, there's a lot of other options out there that are just better at those distances because of heavier weight bullets. The three thirty eight Winchester um, is so underestimated at those ranges that it's 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 pretty unbelievable. Honestly, what that round will do out to about a thousand yards. A three thirty eight Winchester Magnum is what I'm talking about. But you know, you don't need that either. And I think that most people are gonna do well to consistently have a place to shoot five hundred meters. Now, um an S P an S a Smith and Wesson M P ten, yeah, fine. It's a bit short barreled for that, but it'll it'll do fine. Um a little more than fifteen hundred dollars. If I wanted to build you know, a a thirty caliber semi-auto sniper rifle, and I was picking something to build that on, I would probably build it on an M1A Springfield. Eight and a half pounds, plenty of options for optics and accessories, built like a tank, something that's going to hold its value. I mean, that gun will be worth more money in 10 years than it is today. You might not get all the money out of the accessories, but the gun itself is just... Rock solid investment. There's far less of them around than AR-10s, etc. Uh, and you could probably step into one for between find the right deal, thirteen to fourteen hundred dollars. But most of the time, you're looking at an MSRP of somewhere in the eighteen hundred dollar to two thousand dollar range. So I wanted like just to be awesome, badass thirty cal. That that would probably be where I would find myself. Um, but let me make a suggestion that a lot of you probably have seen coming here. Go pick up a used, decent thirty caliber bolt-action rifle. 
put a decent mid-grade scope on it and go out and start shooting at 300 yards and get good at 300 yards with that rifle. Step out to four, step out to five, step out to six. Step out until the rifle won't do it anymore. And I think what you'll find at that point is your personal place that you need to develop the ability to do it. If you're shooting a good bolt-action rifle that can hold the rounds inside an inch or two at 100 yards, and you step out to 500 yards, and you're putting rounds all over the place, it ain't the gun. It ain't the gun, unless something happened to it. If the scope went wonky between the time you shot it at 100 and 500, fine. There is no gun that shoots accurately at 100 and then shoots piss poor at 500. There's guns that hold their their bearing better at those extended ranges. But it's more the operator than the gun. Again, rack grade. Vietnam era. M16A1s that put thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of rounds through them. Every eight-week cycle of basic training. This is 1989 for me. Right, 1990, going through that cycle and having a rifle like that slop in it. You know, talk about how 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 uh, precision made the M16 is over the AK. By the time that gun's been used that long, even with rebuilds and the armor working on them all the time, I mean, those are just abused. And you pick them up, you do what you're told. 300 meters away is a half-size silhouette, so a man from his belly to the top of his head pops up. You can barely see it, but you know where it is. You hold it right, bam, down goes the target. How much do you really need? How much better for long-range shooting is an old Savage 110 and 308 than that piss-poor 5.56 that's been around? I mean, those guns, those guns were made in the 60s. We were shooting them in the late 80s, early 90s. I'm talking full-on full rock-and-roll auto M16s. That's how old these things were. Old handguards, the triangle ones you see in the Vietnam movies, those. If they can drop that target at 300 meters, what do you think you need to, to hit a target that size at 5? You need the skill. So, if what I've said... Is true, and that's none of us are ever going to be playing Red Dawn, dropping Russians at 800 meters, or dropping Illuminati, or United Nations blue helmets at 800 meters. Why would you even shoot that far? Because it's fun. Because it's a test of your abilities. Because it leads you to see how much can I really do? Can I actually make this happen? And I think what you'll find, especially if you'll take some classes in doing this, it's a lot easier than you think it is. Now, if you can't shoot at all, I mean, it's you got to learn to do that first. You know, I think the first thing that just most people should do, especially if they're not a good, solid rifle shot, I think everybody can benefit from this. Everybody should do, especially, you know, if you just don't, you say, well, I've never really had anybody teach me about guns before. I'm not really a good shot. I don't know what to Go to an apple seed shoot. They will do more for you in two days. Then 20 years of listening to people talk to you on podcasts and forums. Two days, they will take a person that shoots for shit, honestly. And you might not earn that rifleman badge the first time through. But you'll be a much better 
shooter in two days. I And there is no value in training in firearms, especially with rifles, that exceeds what Appleseed does in the world that I personally... If you want somebody, somebody else to show me something that exceeds the value for the cost, uh, show me, please. I want to know. I want to recommend it, too. But I don't know anything that will teach you the fundamentals of rifle marksmanship the way an Appleseed shoot will. And most of your shooting is pretty close range. But you shoot at little tiny targets. Little tiny targets. And if you can't do that, you're not ever going to be ringing gongs at 800 meters. So that's, those are my thoughts on it. But, I mean, again, top end, I'm, I'm saying M, M1A. Some people may disagree. I, 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 that's fine. Um, good quality AR-10s. Like Smith & Wesson makes a good quality AR platform. They really do. And there's you know a lot of other people that do Colt, et cetera, that make good quality AR platforms. Those, those are going to do everything you need more. Um, but if you just want to get started, why don't spend, spend some of that money on a class and some ammunition and some good optics? Again, you can pick up a good quality bolt action for three to four hundred dollars at a gun show any day of the week. And it's, they're not pretty. But God, it's hard to beat, all, beat those old savages. They are just phenomenal for the money. And the fact that the, I see them still, 220, 250 bucks sometimes. Because the stock's faded and scratched. 30 minutes. Of refinishing work, and that gun looks better than the day it came out of the freaking store for the first time. And it doesn't have anything to do with the accuracy check, the bore, make sure it's good, you know, what have you. And if you buy one of those guns for a couple hundred, hundred, couple hundred and a half dollars, and it turns out to not be a great shooter, you take it right back to the freaking gun show and get, you know, if you pay two fifty, get two hundred for it. You're out fifty bucks for playing with a gun. That's not bad. You can't rent it for that, you know. And you'll find one that shoots a little better. But I've never seen one shoot poorly. I have never seen a Savage Bolt Action Model 110 shoot just like where, okay, I wouldn't own this gun. I've never seen it. Some of you may have. Anyway, those are my thoughts on that. Hopefully I gave you good variety. They actually had a bunch more uh, queued up, but we got long because there's a lot of stuff to talk about today that I really, you know, is important to me. Again, on the, the mental experiment we did at the beginning, hopefully you're not mad at me. I, I, I don't know how you could be. I didn't tell you what to think. I made you think for yourself and asked you a question. And I'm okay with any answer you have. But I'd love to hear your answers to that question. And the rationale and the logic behind them. Not so much the defense of why I still don't agree as it pertains to it, but just the question I asked. Can we ever isolate a discussion down a, a pinpoint thing and just see, and what does that mean to you? How does that make you feel? I'd, I'd love to hear that. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, in the comments section, the ban of fracking, the ban on banning fracking, and how if you change the issue, it might change the way you feel about it. Thinking at a higher level is the most important thing that I teach on this show. Not which gun is better, not which seed produces better fruit, not which thing to put in your bug out bag, etc. It's how to think and analyze critically that is the skill that I'm trying to develop in the people that listen to this audience. Because I don't want to tell you what to do. I don't want to tell you what to think. I want to focus on how to think. Because nobody's doing that in this world anymore. Everybody has an agenda. 
And that agenda usually is to enrich themselves at the expense of someone else. We've built a society where that seems to make sense. I believe that we actually can enrich ourselves by enriching others. I really believe that. And not as some BS Amway talk either. Through real world individual entrepreneurship, I believe that's what we do at Survival Podcast. Even if I piss you off at times, even if my opinion is in direct conflict with your own, the one thing I've always promised you, and I've, I believe I've always, always done, is I promised you I would never tell you what to believe. I would tell you what I believe and why I believe it and challenge you to challenge yourself and either firm up your belief or change it if that makes sense for you. I don't really know many people doing that today. I'd like more people to do it. If you think you can do it too, get going, man. Get going. Do it to challenge people to think. And this is my, my final challenge for you today. The next time you hear anything that causes an emotional response in you, and I'm talking like a, a national news story, something somebody posts on Facebook, dissect it for 15 minutes with no emotion. Go find the facts, research it, analyze the source, analyze the validity or invalidity of the claim. What does it really mean? Who's really behind it? Who gained from presenting it to you the way that it was initially presented to you? Who suffered? Sometimes you'll find, I was pissed off. There was a legitimate reason to be pissed off. This is exactly what they say it was. And the people that gain from it should gain from it. And the people that suffer from it should suffer from it. It's everything I believe it to be. And you know what? When you critically analyze something that way, it's just as valuable as when you critically analyze something and you find out, I was lied to, I was deceived. Oh, it is what they say, but not quite in the context that they said it, and etc. Every single time you do it, your mind becomes sharper. And what this is, as one listener put it at one time, a vaccination against bullshit. The majority of what is used to control you in the world today is mental conditioning, the use of fear and anger and bullshit to create those two things. They serve you the sopa de mierda de toro every day. Please stop drinking from the cup of bullshit soup. Make yourself a really great cup of lemon balm, mint, and morinda tea. And now you know how to do that. Sit back, analyze, and think. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.